Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Institute Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Alex Metcalf. Alex is the Global Head of Public Sector for the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants, where he focuses on leadership and policy in the public sector. He's an experienced economist specializing in tax policy and has graduate degrees from both Oxford and Cambridge with emphasis on accounting, business policy, and comparative social policy. Alex has worked across central, provincial, and local governments in the UK and Canadian civil service, has published material across a breadth of public sector topics, including infrastructure finance, employment law, and fiscal policy, and serves on the editorial board of the Public Service Accounting and Accountability book series. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, David. It's great to be here today. I'm glad you can join us. As I you know, talk to people about this podcast, my goal is to bring people in who have interesting perspectives and new ideas. And in our first conversation, that was one of the things that impressed me most about you and your work. So I'm wondering if you can help our listeners understand a bit about what you're doing with the ACCA and the public sector. And I think that'll set the table for the rest of our conversation. Sounds excellent, David, and really kind of you to say as well. So as a a brief background for for your listeners today, uh, ACCA, the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants, is a a global professional body for for accountancy and finance. Uh, And we're we're quite privileged that we actually have over, I think it's nearly 230,000 members now and almost half a million students around the world, so in 179 countries. Uh, And with that global footprint, there's then a a global infrastructure that sits alongside it of different offices and centers to support it. Uh, And and that makes for some really interesting work that that I get to do, David, uh, around our ACCA members, so our professional accountants who are members of our association, who are working in the public sector. Uh, and to, to help them in their work, I undertake research and, and different policy endeavors. So this is looking at developing international standards and supporting their adoption, undertaking global research. And I hope we get to, to discuss some of that today and talking about some of the best practices that we, we look to promote globally. Uh, and of course, uh, really important to my, my role within ACCA is the, the training of professional accountants that are, are ready to deal with the challenges of the public sector uh, in what has been a, a very challenging time, making sure that we have the, the skills needed for the future across a variety of public sector entities. Well, and I think not everyone is aware of the size of ACCA. I mean, it's, that's, that's pretty impressive, especially when you mention half a million students that are involved, because we look about what the future is for the work of accountancy. Uh, and accountants, and now in this in this uh, focus on the public sector, I think some of the things that we're going to talk about today, relative to the accounting influence and the potential for uh, accounting influence on performance of the public sector, will will interest people. But let me go back a bit because in in the introduction, I had mentioned that you've done work within the UK and the Canadian civil service. But take us back and and tell us a little bit about how you got to this place. How did you get to this role with ACCA? Uh, well, I think for from my own story, this is one where I've very much been committed to to public service in different guises, and, and really interested in either working with or or for governments uh, around the world. And that started in Canada, so it started with uh, working in in local government uh, in in the Canadian context, uh, and I actually did a bit of back and forth between the Atlantic, so going between the UK and Canada for a number of years. 
And maybe actually, David, it's probably fair to say, actually, in getting me to, to this place now, it really got me to the UK was uh, was love. So uh, and having met my, my now wife in the UK, in London, uh, I met her two weeks before moving back to Canada to work with the, <laughs> the Ministry of Finance there uh, and doing the tax policy work that you, you'd mentioned in the introduction. Um, and after a number of years long distance said, no, I think marriage needs to be in the same place. So we, we came back and didn't have a long distance marriage and it's brought me back to London. But of course, it's actually very much a passion for public finance too. So uh, having worked across local, provincial, central governments, uh, it's now a really fascinating role that I found here with ACCA, where our public sector members work with supreme audit institutions. So these are the, the auditors general around the world who are auditing the financial statements and setting up performance audits on value for money, as, a, as an example. There are also uh, many individuals who work in the kind of leading roles across policy, too. So really at the, the kind of forefront and driving change in the public sector. Uh, and it's a real privilege to be able to do that from in a day sometimes, if, I, if I'm lucky, it, starting in Asia, making our way through to Europe and Africa and finishing the day with, uh, with North America and the Caribbean and others too. So it's, it's uh, quite a fascinating role in being able to share that uh, across our global networks. Well, and I think being placed in London gives you that advantage too, of being able mm. to work across all those time zones. You know, when you took the role, were you thinking or uh, was ACCA thinking that there were certain objectives they had for helping their membership in this space? I mean, again, getting this notion of what mm. defines success for you in this role. I, I'd say very much the, the guiding light for us is helping governments and officials manage public money well. So we're, we're, I think we're now at a point, it's, it's probably fair to say that uh, many of the different fiscal illusions, for example, so these are uh, to get to accounting, some accounting devices that can be used to give the, the view of change without the substance sitting underneath it. These kind of things are just not going to work in the, the financial context that we now find ourselves in. So here in the UK, for example, uh, the, the debt to GDP ratio has just tipped over 100%. And that's not including some of the, the much broader uh, liabilities that many governments uh, not just advanced economies are, are taking on at the moment. So uh, I'd say that's probably the guiding light for us, David, is, is managing public money well and supporting members in doing that and also supporting um, many other public sector institutions too. So it's not just that broad membership of 230,000, but it's also very much uh, individuals that I, I get the pleasure of interacting with on supporting them on improving their skills or in sharing good practice too. And hopefully, yeah, we get to dive into that a little bit today as well yeah. in our conversation. Well, and, and, you know, the public sector affects everyone. So, so mm. I think your, your work there means not just the membership, as you'd said, but, but all of us that are listening. This term you just used, fiscal illusions. Yes. We're yeah. thinking of that, I think, in some corporate scandals, you know, that have played out in various parts of the world. Fiscal illusion, I think, is a great way of, of describing it. But you hinted just a bit at contingent liabilities uh, in the UK and, and elsewhere. And I think these sort of, there's a, there's a term you used, and, and I'll, I'll get it wrong, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit uh, more about this later. Uh, I think it was below the line or, or, mm. or, or mm. A reference to things that, yep. that we don't necessarily see in any of our financial statements. Gets to this core element of trust. And mm. you had talked somewhere I'd read, or maybe it was in a conversation we had had, that trust is at the core of public sector performance. So performance, obviously, getting to the to the goals of the of the uh, of the uh, uh, entity, the government entity. Can you elaborate a little bit on how trust impacts whether uh, public sector performance is good or or below expectations? Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. Yeah, I think this is a, a real insight that comes through from some of the work at ACCA, but also what we see more broadly. And I, I might actually just start by turning it on its head. So um, we talk about trust driving public sector performance. Uh, there's some great research actually that shows uh, it's from an EU research agency. It's called Eurofound. Uh, and they surveyed nearly 90,000 people across Europe, across the EU. Uh, and, and what they tried to to sort out what they tried to, to really figure out here was what were the variables that drive trust in institutions? So that actually kind of provides that bedrock for social cohesion, for uh, what we'll also talk about in terms of public sector performance. But by far the, the single most important variable that they, they came across in this probably unprecedented size of, uh, of a study uh, was perceived quality of public services. So it was it was just head and shoulders above everything else that they analyzed was the the public's perception of the quality of public services was driving institutional trust. And that I think that really gives you something of a, a guiding light in in how public sector institutions need to be working towards high high levels of performance such that they can turn that into something of I hope a virtuous circle actually. Right where you, you see that those, those quality institutions, the quality um, public services, giving us trust in those institutions, and thereby actually allowing us, I'd say, for better collective action then too. Right, once you have that trust, I think what we talked about before, David, was the kind of core social contract that sits underneath um, what, of course, is quite precious tax revenue coming in, and believing that that will be spent well. And there, there are jurisdictions that, uh, that we operate uh, across with an ACCA where um, the, the tax base can be incredibly small. It can be something like 4% of GDP. Uh, and that has the, the exact opposite of what we've just talked about. You have negative feedback loops operating across this instead, where no one really believes that the money will be spent effectively. They don't see, they don't have the perception of quality public services, reduced trust, and it feeds back into lower quality institutions again. So I think it's, it's a really, it's a difficult one to break, but one, maybe to, to end the point and then hand back to you, that I see a really important role for professional accountants in making a difference in, in the public sector as well. Your use of the word perceived hits right to the heart of stuff I've been talking about you know, with a little bit more emphasis lately, which is this notion of how we attract and, and re-attract capital. So mm -hmm. there's the feedback uh, element that you had just mentioned. But uh, in working with a, a colleague who's a neuroscientist, we started mm -hmm. talking about this notion of feed forward. And feed forward is based on perception. So it's emotional. Uh, mm -hmm. It's based on an assessment of trust and trust that what will happen is actually what we expect. So it's sort of a risk of being disappointed. And you just started to hint a little bit about the role accountants in this, because one of the arguments I make about this feed forward mechanism is that transparency is one of those ways to build trust. So transparency mm -hmm. of accounting, perhaps, uh, or transparency of reporting on assets and, and liabilities will help build that trust. So I think this is really great. I love, I love that, that you know, you're emphasizing this notion of perceived quality of mm -hmm. public service. Um, so it's, it's experience, but it's also expectations. So this leads us to this other place, you know, that's related to this idea of attracting capital, which is the need for continuous innovation. And mm -hmm. most of us don't think of the public sector as a place of innovation. We, you know, we tend to think of it as a place of, of confiscation, uh, if we, especially here in America. We've got that as, <laughs> I think, <laughs> one of our founding principles. 
So can you talk a little bit about, in, in your world, innovation in public finance and the public sector, and maybe some examples that stand out to you, particularly positive impact? Definitely. I'd, yeah, I'd love to do that. So that's, um, it is actually a, a subject that we spent some time on, uh, partly as a, a myth-busting exercise, David. So going in and to, and to see without actually knowing the outcome in advance, with the, the privilege of having both public sector members and private sector members who are professional accountants around the world, to what extent we saw innovation occurring uh, across the different sectors, right? And uh, in this work, we, we were first started with liter- literature review to make sure that we had a, a concise and consistent definition when we said innovation, what do we really mean? And it was actually surprisingly consistent in the literature. Uh, and that was really three areas that you, you had to satisfy. The first of those is that for it to be innovation, it had to be new, but it had to be new to the context. So it doesn't be, it doesn't maybe that an institution has to invent the new iPhone uh, as an example, but it has to be new to the context in which it operates. It also has to be implemented. This is the second one. I think that's a pretty fair one. I hope you say the same, David. They can't just be thinking about it. They actually have to have done this on the ground. Uh, and then the third area is that it, within a public sector context, has to have sought to improve public value. So you're looking to create value through this, this particular change. It'll have been implemented, and it's new to the context. So that was our test, and we, we put that to a global survey of the membership. And the really interesting thing that came back was that we actually saw no statistical difference between the response between public and private. So with, with that particular definition, uh, it was in the, the high 80s that it came back both in public and private sector responses. So, so interesting initial response there. But I think to get to the detail of it too, what we saw in the public sector is that most of the innovation that was occurring was incremental in nature. That was our description of it. So uh, smaller changes on the edges operating more in the context of the probably the risk aversion that you're you're imagining too right so the where i'd actually say that inaction is still very much a decision the the preference for risk aversion and maybe tinkering on the edge to satisfy that definition of innovation what was more dominant in public sector than what we saw in private but there were uh, a number of challenges and quite fundamental challenges that came out in the survey and when we asked against that set of challenges what kind of innovation do we need to see in public sector we had a resounding response that there needed to be more radical forms of innovation. So full changes to systems, uh, differences in how power is actually distributed within organizations, uh, that really quite fundamental relooks at how value is created in public sector institutions too. So I, I think that's a, an interesting call to action to hear from, from finance professionals around the world, people you think who might be a, a risk-adverse bunch as, as a default, uh, but calling for, for more radical forms of innovation. So I hope that's, that's yeah, a helpful quick overview on some of that research. But you also asked me about different examples we saw uh, of forms of innovation that are occurring in a public sector context. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, I think that you know, one of the things that people look for are, you know, it's easy to talk policy and, mm-hmm. and uh, concepts and, and uh, things that we seek as ideals. But we're always looking for examples where things work and, yes, and, and yeah. have a positive impact. We learn from things that don't work, but, but most importantly, I think we want to learn from things that do work. So any, any examples you have, I'd love to hear about them. Definitely. So I think a great place to start with this uh, is what we describe as taking a balance sheet approach. And there, there are a short but growing list of jurisdictions who have moved beyond actually where we started in our conversation today, which is just talking about either just simple cash flows, just money in and money out, and then the resulting debt stock, so your, your debt to GDP ratios. And they've gone from that fairly 
simple perspective and presentation to one that is necessarily more complicated, but much more comprehensive and robust. And that's instead taking a public sector net worth perspective. Uh, and that public sector net worth position will include not just debt liability, but it'll include uh, the full range of public assets available to a, a particular government. It also looks at a really important set of non-debt liabilities. So uh, a fairly consistent and important example around the world is public sector pensions. So you'll see um, in any one year, there's money that might be moving out of, uh, of public sector organizations to fund uh, or to pay for public pensions. But ultimately, there's a much larger liability that's often sitting behind that for the, the, the full uh, staff that might be uh, represented within that the public sector organization. And, and that's a much bigger liability that needs to be thought about and, and managed actively instead. And th this has really come to the fore, David, in the last 18 months through COVID because of the very substantial responses that we've seen uh, to, to the pandemic. And that's the IMF estimates it's something like 16 trillion US dollars that's been spent globally in response to COVID-19. Uh, at the time that we undertook some research in this area, the majority of that response was on those below the line interventions. So interventions that will not show up in your standard cash flow analysis, they won't show up in a debt to GDP ratio. And we need to look instead to the jurisdictions who have this comprehensive public sector balance sheet, who provide a view of the contingent liabilities that are actually arising. So very often what's causing this are promises, the governments who make promises that, for example, if a small business isn't able to make a payment on a loan, the government will step in. Uh, the, this is also takes the form of, of equity injections, uh, different forms of guarantees. So all of this is, is actually creating significant risk on public sector balance sheets. Uh, and really, it's been public sector finance professionals who've had to step up uh, and start to provide really useful information to decision makers uh, on how to put together response packages to, to COVID-19 and how to think about how we manage these new contingent liabilities into the future. In our, in our public sector uh, balance sheets that we, we need to all be managing, whether you have the information or not. So that's a, a first example. A really good um, case study of that was uh, out of New Zealand. So New Zealand ha has done an excellent job of moving towards uh, a much more kind of performance management focus, where they do monthly reporting uh, of their financial position. Uh, they also look to increase the resilience of their public sector institutions by improving the the public sector net worth by improving, uh, when I say public sector net worth, that's the assets less the liabilities. They see that as a core measure of, of success uh, for the government down, down in New Zealand. Uh, and others are, are working their way through this, but it's, it's also something where you can still apply the mindset of, of a taking a balance sheet approach without even having all the financial information to hand. So what would, uh, as an example, a fire sale of assets do? If you just sell things as quickly as possible and you get cash, in from that is that that's not going to help your balance sheet, is it? As a, as an example there, and instead, what you see in a public sector balance sheet approach is you understand that it's not money falling from heaven, as it was described as one expert to us. Instead, it's having an impact on your, your overall financial position. Your fire sale of assets has actually reduced your public sector net worth. So I think there's there's really a lot to to be considering within that that broader approach there and that we've really been trying to champion this this globally at a time where there is a ballooning of these contingent liabilities around the world so that's that's one example for you maybe a very quick one that i'd also mention and it's it's a perennial uh, area of focus for public sector finance professionals and that's around outcomes based budgeting so i imagine um i think it's the case now that the um 
here in the US, you're, you're looking at another uh, potential cliff with not making debt payments. Um, and it's, this is one where you know, there, there's, you can see some, what I might describe at least as poor practice in, in setting fiscal limits by governments. There's other practices we often see, which is focusing on inputs instead. So finding if you, there's a particular social problem we're trying to make a difference in, and that it could be homelessness, for example. Uh, the focus by government can often be, because it's much easier, uh, is how much are we spending on it? And can we just announce that we're spending more? So we were spending 100 million US dollars on this. Um, can we announce that we're spending another 50 million, right? So that's the, the input focus that you very often see across public sector institutions. But the, the, the really good pockets of good practice that we see is a transition towards outcome-based budgeting. So instead here, the, the starting point isn't how much did we spend last year and can we index that to inflation or uh, can we maybe announce an increase in spend? Instead, it's what are we trying to achieve as a, as a government or as a specific public sector institution? And then aligning the, the budget or the spending review over a number of years to those particular outcomes and making change based on what could be pilots and information that comes back from it. So I think there's, there's some interesting pockets of success in this. And one of those is actually in Baltimore. So I, I'd uh, encourage you to have a look at innovation in public finance, the report we did for ACCA uh, as ACCA that talks about the, the case example in Baltimore of moving to outcomes-based budgeting. Well, I'm, and I'm glad to have you reference that. I do want to make sure people look for this other paper, which um, you know, starts to get into the difference between a balance sheet approach to public finance, uh, which you co-authored uh, three or four months into the pandemic. And it's, it's really well done. Mm. There are things that I think those of us outside of the public sector don't necessarily get into our minds easily. And that's this notion that our federal governments have, or even our local governments have a balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. we're used to an income approach, right? It's, it's deficit spending, it's surplus, whatever it might be, we're, we're really looking at it that way. In this mm -hmm. paper though, you go into the approach and, and you hinted just a second ago at it, at the New Zealand model. One of the things that really stood out to me in this, in this report was that looking at a number of major developed economies, most of them had uh, negative balance sheets. And I think Canada maybe was close to flat, maybe slightly negative, slightly positive. New Zealand stood out from all of them as having an enormously positive balance sheet. Can you talk a little bit about what the assets and liabilities are that would go into a, a, a public sector mm -hmm. balance sheet? Definitely, yeah, and, and it's really important. When I, I think we can talk in broad strokes, saying uh, that there are public assets that are available to different governments or, or public sector institutions. But it's important to, I think, understand the the differences in those public assets and what return uh, on investment we might expect from them. So you'll see in the in the report. So this is the the one you've you've mentioned there, David, on sustainable public finances through COVID nineteen, uh, which we we did actually. I should mention quickly too. We did this in collaboration with the World Bank with the IPSAS board, which is the International Public Sector Accounting Standards Board, some of their staff fed in, and also some, some excellent input from UK Treasury. Uh, and when we looked at this, this view of what is still very often a focus on cash, as you've said, in, in public sector uh, environments, I think one of the reasons why you actually see 
New Zealand performing so well is that if you go back to, I think it was the early 90s, they moved towards uh, accrual accounting and producing a comprehensive balance sheet. They did it in 18 months, which is actually an incredible transformation, and have since then been focusing on it as, as something of a, a North Star for their in terms of their public sector finances and the health of them. Uh, so you see at this point now, that's given New Zealand significant resilience against shocks and an ability to respond with substantial fiscal firepower against even some of the other advanced economies who've had to rely more on, to some degree, printing money and risks about uh, the inf inflation that can come from that or what's described as monetary financing as well. So, so yeah, the, I think that that focus has been really important. Getting into the, the assets and liabilities themselves, uh, when we look on the, the asset side of the balance sheet, we divided this into a few different areas. So we talked about financial assets, so assets where you could apply a private sector lens and consider what rate of return are we getting on this and is it, a, uh, is it equivalent to what might be expected in the market. Uh, we also look at different varieties of social assets that exist. So there, there's quite a few examples of, of types of assets in a public sector context that you wouldn't expect a market rate or a financial return on, right? So if you look at a, a school, as an example, in, a, in an urban center, so in a kind of cosmopolitan urban center, let's say a school in Manhattan, a public school in Manhattan, uh, of course, you could sell that school and, and get a significant return based on the, the location of the, the land, but it's providing a broader social purpose then. So what, what we do talk about when we, we think about these, these public assets is that there's a uh, a proper division between them, uh, and then we have to think about those assets differently. Uh, maybe another, a final comment on, on public assets is there, there's some really interesting work happening at the moment uh, around natural capital too. So thinking uh, about the government's rights to what, what can start with just um, oil reserves as a, as a clear example of this, but uh, there, there's definitely a broadening out of the conversation as we're, we're thinking about the, the real challenges for sustainability and climate change of how we start thinking about natural capital uh, within the context of public sector balance sheets. So that's uh, an interesting exploration on the, the asset, public asset side. For, for liabilities, uh, this is one where what we spend almost all of our time talking about is debt and the, the size of the public debt. Interestingly, in the UK, as we went into COVID, so in advance of the, the large uh, additional spending that we saw, the public pension liability was larger than the public debt mm. on the public sector balance sheet. So that gives you a sense of the scale here of like, well, are we looking and are we focusing on the right things if we're actually dwarfing the size of the public debt with other for other liabilities that are sitting on the balance sheet? And we're not if we're not thinking about those at all in our decision making, it's a significant risk for long-term sustainability of public finances. So, so that's um, yeah, a single example of, of public pensions and a common one that we see around the world. There, there's other things um, depending on the services that are provided by governments. So uh, another prominent one in the UK where there's uh, public sector provision of healthcare is professional negligence. So claims on that, where at the moment it could be going through the courts and you don't know what the result will be, but there's a contingent liability sitting on that one as well. So there's a pretty broad range of those, but it gives you just a much, a much more comprehensive view of the financial position of the government as a whole and then specific public sector institutions as well. Well, and, and one of the things as I read through this paper that stood out to me is that it would be difficult, whether you want to just lump people into a, a conservative or a more liberal uh, political grouping. Mm -hmm. It would be difficult for either of those groups to look at this paper and argue against it because there are things in here that any sound business would follow. You, you, you have a, a, a chart in there of five dimensions of, across which New Zealand measures their balance sheet performance, which 
any business, if you put that in front of them and said, this is what company ABC does, would say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. They wouldn't expect that to be from a, a government, but it's really you know, essential for all of us to run well. So if we want our governments to run like businesses, this is, this is again, another great model for that. You touched on capital and we, we have just a couple of minutes left and I, I, I wanna make sure we get to a subject that you also introduced me to. But this notion of capital and trust and capital attraction, again, I wanna commend this paper to people to read because uh, what is in here is, is applicable to the private sector as well as the public sector. I'm just glad to see it being applied in the way that you did. So let's go to something very different. And I would imagine <laughs> most of our listeners are not aware of, and that's this notion of participatory budgeting. It sounds like something cumbersome, something that, that perhaps uh, is difficult to uh, make work, but maybe you could just spend a couple of minutes describing it. And, mm. and then you know, give us a quick sense for whether this is a growing area that people should be aware of in terms of public sector uh, finance and, and spending uh, or, or things that we should be you know, paying attention to that we can learn from it. Okay, so sounds good, David. So participatory budgeting, this is something that in some guise has actually been around for a few decades now. Uh, and going back, some of the original pilots were, were taking place in Brazil at a local government level. And really the, the concept here is that you, instead of just having a, a representational process, so having elected officials who set a budget that's then implemented by officials, you have direct representation from the public in setting either... It could be feeding into the whole budget and providing ideas on it. For some, uh, some jurisdictions, they set aside a portion of the budget and say, this will go through a participatory budgeting process that will decide how that money is spent. Uh, and that can be between, uh, that could be in terms of investment, for example, it could be day-to-day -day running of, of services as well. And the, the example that we talked about was, was one in, in Paris of participatory budgeting. And what they've done is combine a few of the different ideas, which is why we decided to focus in there, where there's a, a broad public engagement where individuals, so any, any citizen is able to, uh, to submit ideas on how to, how to be spending money differently, what programs should be focused on, uh, a full, really full range of almost a blank sheet and, and submitting that. Uh, some interesting models you see actually result in up or down voting, like you'll, you'll see in some online platforms these days. So uh, ideas that have a broad public support will then move up that list in, the, in a budget consultation process. Uh, and then the, the interesting part for us as well, of course, is, is ACCA, of a professional body of, uh, of different professional accountants and, and finance professionals, uh, is the interface that we see between experts and officials directly with the public. In, in that budget formulation process. And, and that's been uh, you know, a really interesting area to discuss in terms of the, the kind of emotional intelligence that's uh, required in, in achieving that. Um, the, and maybe to, to close us off on this one too, the, the interesting thing that we've seen, because very often it happens at a kind of local government level, uh, is certain jurisdictions trying to do this nationally now too. So, so <laughs> Portugal as an example of that, where they've now set aside a, a portion of their budget uh, to be set through a participatory budgeting process. Well, in, in, in reading some things about this, you, you mentioned earlier outcomes-based planning. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the outcomes that I read about included greater trust in government, mm -hmm. more representation of people who uh, have fewer resources. And there was a different term. You know, Bob, Bob Monx has written about something called corpocracy, um, which is the idea that, that large corporations uh, guide a democracy um, mm -hmm. because they have greater resources. 
Um, in, in essence, it seemed like through this participatory budgeting, there was movement away from that and, and towards individual power, but it winds up being uh, expressed through the collective. So I thought it was very mm -hmm. interesting in its origins, its outcomes. Uh, I particularly appreciate this work that you're doing because we are an environment here in the States, certainly, of greater and greater distrust of public institutions. And I think what you're getting at in your work, in getting back to that early question about, about some of your objectives in this, your work has the potential to bring us back to a place where there's greater faith in, in ourselves and our institutions because they become more representative, because they have greater transparency and greater trust. So I, I hope that you find success, continued success, I should say, in your work. Uh, and I appreciate your time today. Half an hour is not enough time to spend with you, but hopefully it brings people to more of your research. Excellent. Thank you very much for taking the time today, David. I enjoyed our conversation. 